In Theology 530, Systematic Theology 2, we begin with Christology. At the outset, we will be looking at several issues relating to the person of Christ. The first issue has to do with Christology in contemporary theology. In your reading, pay special attention to some of the recent efforts by liberal and neo-orthodox theologians to reinterpret the meaning of Christ for today. It was thought by many of these thinkers that we simply cannot accept the picture of Christ as he is presented in the New Testament. Moderns of the 19th and 20th centuries simply could not accept the so-called pre-scientific language of the Bible describing the life and times of Jesus. So the search was on to discover who Jesus really was. Adolf von Harnack represents a general consensus among liberal thinkers of the 19th century that Jesus was a great moral teacher whose teachings can be generally boiled down to the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The emphasis of these theologians was on the moral teachings, not the supernatural claims recorded in the Gospels. The upshot of this so-called search was that Jesus came to be viewed as a personification of their own liberal preconceptions of the significance of Jesus. The most important critique of this liberal view was from Albert Schweitzer. He argued that this entire project was a failure. All they succeeded in accomplishing was redefining Jesus after their own image. Furthermore, this new reconstruction of Jesus had nothing to do with the original Jesus. He argued that if we are able to know who Jesus really was, we have to take seriously what the New Testament has to say about him. In this respect, he argued that Jesus' message was thoroughly eschatological and could not be reduced to a set of moral teachings, such as the liberals attempted to do. Schweitzer felt that Jesus was wrong in his expectation that he would usher in this kingdom, but that should not count against the fact that this was his message. The importance of Schweitzer for us was not in his conclusions, which evangelicals can never accept, but in his successful critique of the liberal agenda. As the debate enters the 20th century, a distinction made earlier by Martin Kaler reemerged to change the conversation. He had argued that when we look at the New Testament, we shouldn't think of it as mere history, that is facts, but as Geschichte, that is significant history. This led to a distinction between theology from above versus theology from below. The liberals looked for Jesus from below, that is, they looked only at raw history. Neo-Orthodox thinkers such as Bart and Boltmann gave precedence to the witness of the New Testament. This was styled theology from above, or theology based on revelation rather than mere empirical research. Later developments in the 20th century, including among evangelicals such as Erickson, determined that we really need to do both. We need to establish who Jesus is as a historical figure, but we also need to understand his significance as presented in the New Testament. Not as if there's a contradiction between them, but recognizing that Jesus is more than a mere myth. He is also a real person about whom the New Testament gives a truthful and faithful witness. 
Together with the, the debate regarding whether to give priority to history or the New Testament in understanding Jesus Christ, another aspect of the debate focused on whether to give priority to his person or his work. Is the significance of Christ defined by what he did, or is the significance of what he did determined by who he was? Modern theology continued to exaggerate the importance of what Jesus did, while neo-orthodoxy emphasized who Jesus was. Classical and Protestant theology, on the other hand, has always attempted to keep these two factors together. In the early creeds, the significance of what Jesus accomplished was largely due to who he was as the God-man. The Protestant reformers reiterated this to say that our very salvation depends upon a proper understanding of the work of Christ as understood against what Scripture says about who he was as the incarnate Son of God. In order then to understand fully what it was that Jesus Christ came to do and how this was accomplished, it is necessary to consider the person of Christ as truly God, as truly man, and as one person with two natures. These will be studied in turn throughout this module. As we examine the biblical evidence concerning the deity of Christ, there are at least five lines of inquiry based on scriptural evidence. First, there are claims Christ made of himself. For example, he claimed to be the object of faith and to be equal with God the Father. He claimed to have a unique relationship with the Father. He claimed to be able to satisfy our deepest needs and to be able to give eternal life and security. As someone has well said, if any of these claims proved false, Jesus would be unworthy of our devotion since he would have to be either a fraud or a lunatic. The only other conclusion is that he spoke the truth and is to be worshipped as God. A second line of inquiry has to do with the claims of other biblical authors. Here too, the New Testament is replete with passages that speak of him, for example, as God, as the Lord, as God blessed forever, as the true God, whose throne, O God, is forever. A third line of inquiry is related to the names and titles employed in Scripture to speak of Jesus. He is called God. He is called the Son of God. He is called Lord, a virtual synonym for Yahweh for his Jewish contemporaries. Additionally, he is spoken of as the Lord of Glory, the Holy One, the First and Last, the Alpha and Omega. All of these signify an identification with the Godhead. A fourth line of inquiry has to do with divine attributes that are assigned to him in the scriptures. These include self-existent life, immutability, eternality, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, truth, goodness, righteousness, sovereignty, holiness, and incomprehensibility. These are staggering assertions if they are not true. A fifth line of inquiry has to do with his works. What Jesus is said to have done presupposes his deity. He was the agent of creation and of providence. He gives life and forgives sins. He receives worship, receives and answers prayer and demands obedience. 
He builds and sustains the church. It is claimed that he will be the final judge and that he will be involved in the final events of history. Is it any wonder, then, that Scripture ascribes divine honor to him, and we gladly come and adore him with the shepherds of old? When attempting to understand the nature and reality of Jesus' deity and humanity, there have been a number of false starts, leading to heretical views concerning the complex person of Christ. Terms such as Arianism, Gnosticism, Docetism, Eutychianism and Apollinarianism come to mind, representing various false attempts to understand the amazing truth that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Any solution that required that he be less divine or less human to any degree was considered heretical in the ancient church and was discarded. This is still considered so in Orthodox teaching. In this module, where we focus on the humanity of Christ, it is evident that the New Testament writers affirm Jesus to be fully human, a Jew, the descendant through Mary of Abraham and David. This was deemed vital to his mission to fulfill God's promises to Israel and to provide a mediator between God and humankind, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and to make our salvation possible through his death and resurrection. Here, once again, we see that there is a vital connection between who Jesus was, that is, his person, and what Jesus did, that is, his work. Having established that Jesus was both God and man, the next issue that must be resolved is to answer the question, how could he be both God and man at the same time? Scripture speaks of this as a great mystery, and yet, with the doubting Apostle Thomas, we are invited to explore Jesus' full identity. In the early church, the questions regarding Jesus' relationship to the Trinity were resolved at Nicaea in A.D. 325. And the manner in which the humanity and the deity cohere in the one person was established at the Creed of Chalcedon in A.D. 451. This relationship is defined in theological language as the theanthropic person of Christ. Notice this is not a theanthropic nature. He had two natures, not one that mixed the two. But they were united, not divided, in the one person. The term for this is hypostasis, meaning person. Hence, we refer to this as the hypostatic union from the term hypostasis. So why did the New Testament writers and the early theologians of the church belabor this point so much? The answer relates to something we alluded to above. That is, it makes possible our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Since he was human, he was able to die. And since he was God, he was able to die on behalf of the sins of the whole world. And as the author of Hebrews notes in chapter 2, it is for this reason we have a high priest who is also touched by our own infirmities, and we can be assured that he not only did all, it is not a special task for a select few. But notice also that our authority is Christ himself. 
it was he who issued the command, and it is ours to obey. In these verses we also see that the command includes Jerusalem and Samaria and beyond. Erickson reminds us that this signifies people we like the most as well as those we like the least. It really takes us beyond our comfort zone to encompass the entire world. No wonder he had to send the Holy Spirit to enable us to do this. The task would be impossible without him. A second vital function of the church is edification. Ephesians 4:11 and 12 reads, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service. The body is joined together in regular fellowship and exhortation. It shares its possessions as it lives and loves and suffers and rejoices together. In this sense, nothing could be more painful to consider than excommunication. Edification includes instruction, preaching, and the sharing of spiritual gifts. Each of these requires both an individual and a corporate experience of God's Word and the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. Edification focuses on the body. Worship, on the other hand, focuses on its head. We say not as a microscope, but as a telescope. A microscope enlarges something very small to appear much larger. A telescope enlarges something that appears to be very small to appear much more in keeping with its actual size. When the church worships, she acknowledges that God is greater than any other reality in our lives. It is for this reason that we impoverish our spiritual lives when we neglect to give priority to the regular gathering of God's people. When we are faithful in this, we come to appreciate who we are in Christ and what we are called to do. This is why we should not forsake the assembling together. When God is supreme in our lives and we are regularly nourished and empowered through the edification of the body, we are then able to go forth in obedience to Christ's command to evangelize our community, not in our own strength, but in His. A fourth role is outreach to the community. Jesus is our best example in His ministry to the poor and needy. James calls this pure religion. The church is always in danger of compromising its distinctive in appeals to the world. While we are in the world, we are not of the world. If necessary, this might mean that we will cut across the grain of the culture to condemn injustice and evil, even when, as with John the Baptist, it is found in the seats of power. With John, we may also have to pay a heavy price for this. Erickson reminds us that the central task of the church is not buildings or programs. It is the proclamation of the gospel. This includes information and proclamation. It is this truth concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when truly understood and received, that brings about the new birth. This alone constitutes, in the words of Paul, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, Romans 1. But it is also manifest in deed, 
Christ is proclaimed not only in what we say, but in what we do. Our faith should be seen in our works. As James so aptly says, and as St. Francis famously put it, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. And speaking of the character of the church, Erickson declares, Since the church is, in its continuing existence, Christ's body, and bears his name, it should be characterized by the attributes Christ manifested during his physical incarnation on earth. But having said this, we need to give careful attention to what the world understands of Jesus when it watches how we live and listens to what we say. McLaren rightly observes, If I say Jesus to many of my friends, they don't think of someone who came to forgive sin. They think of people who want to shame people for their sin. They don't think of someone who had special good news for the poor, or of someone who overturned the status quo, but of people who represent the status quo. Against this rebuke, Erickson suggests six character qualities observed in Jesus that should also define the church. These include a readiness to serve. We are not sent to be served, but to serve. Adaptability, as Paul said, we should be all things to all men. Healing, the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, Abigail Van Buren said. Reconciling, that is, breaking down walls that separate, not reinforcing them. Courageous, we should boldly stand against wickedness wherever it is found. And together with that, it should be prophetic. Our witness should be spoken with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees, as they said of Jesus. To bring this discussion to a conclusion, it is evident that a true New Testament church is not defined by its programs or buildings. It is not just a people movement. It is a body of born-again believers who are gathered to worship and serve their Savior. They proclaim the good news of Christ's saving work, and they reflect his heart in all they do. As Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other.